Josh, uh, if I haven't met you yet, and um, I'm going to be reading the scripture for today, so uh, buckle up, because it's uh, a little lengthy. (laughs) Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood of the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God, and all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it, and call in the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us! But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around their altar that they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or is relieving himself. Or maybe he's away on a trip or asleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until their blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones one to represent each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar, uh, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, uh, cut the bull into pieces, and and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, Fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, Do the same again. And when they had finished, he said, Now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the uh, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. This is the word of the Lord.
We're going to go one foot deeper again tonight as we look at the story that Josh just read. Every idol that you and I worship is an accusation against God. Everything that I, that's become precious in my heart and has become a good thing that's become a God thing is an accusation against God. Specifically, it's an accusation that he is absent, that he doesn't care, that he's slacking, that he's inattentive, or that he's uninteresting, that he's not enough, that he's low energy, that he's unfaithful. It's just like in every affair, there's an accusation against the spouse that was cheated on. You weren't enough for me. I don't want to be with you. Being married to you wasn't exciting anymore. In every affair, there's a subtle accusation against the other person. And with every idol, there's a subtle accusation against a God that we have come to believe isn't enough in one way or another. We have become dissatisfied with him, disappointed with him. So there's a helpful thing in here. The places in your life that maybe the past couple of weeks you've been getting a little bit more clarity about. A good thing that's become a God thing, something that's gained a hold of your emotions, of your heart. You're asking spiritual things of these things. Well, that's the X on the map. Those are the specific and precise places in your life where you are dissatisfied and disappointed with God. Now, look, I know that we might not be honestly acknowledging this. That's quite a charge. And we're probably not people who walk around thinking most days, I'm dissatisfied with God. I'm disappointed in God. He's let me down, or I think he's let me down. But those blasphemies are inside of our heart. Those accusations are inside of our heart. And it was that dissatisfaction and disappointment that made our hearts so fertile to move on to a God who won't disappoint us, who is enough, who is more interesting, who is more high energy, more near, more attentive, more electric. Does it make sense? It will in the passage in a second as well. But here's, uh, here's what this dissatisfaction and disappointment sounds like in ordinary everyday conversations. These are things that I've said. These are things that I've heard people say. I've heard y'all say maybe. Here's how subtle it is. Uh, it's not as blatant as I'm disappointed. It sounds like this. I mean, I know that Jesus chooses me. But think about back in August, if this was you. I know that Jesus chooses me but I really just want to bid from that fraternity or that sorority. One of those two things had a hold on your emotions, your soul, your heart, your thoughts, your preoccupations. And I would, I would imagine it probably wasn't Jesus in that scenario, if that had become your craving. So we think things like, I don't feel enough with him, but I would feel enough with them disappointment, dissatisfaction nudges us to move on. Or you might have caught yourself saying or thinking or journaling, I know I'm a daughter of the king. I know I'm a son of God, but I just want to have a friend group. And usually what we mean by that is I want to be in that friend group. 
don't worry about the other 200 people in the room, but those four people that I kind of always keep tabs on at the corner of my eye that I obsess about and think about, I just want to be in that. And it's that friend group that we simultaneously like obsess about and also resent because we can't get in or we feel like we can't get in. We feel like we're invisible. But still the psychology that's going on in our heart and our mind is, I know God's supposed to be enough. I know he includes me, but I really want to be included there. Do you hear the preference coming out? Idolatry grows in the soil of dissatisfaction. It grows in the soil of apathy. It grows in the soil of accusation against God. And again, every week we, we also, as we go a foot deeper, we're getting a foot deeper into the, the true dimensions of the biggest problem in our hearts that needs solving, right? This isn't something as simple as, oh, I have a control idol. I really love control. Okay, stop being so controlling and trust Jesus. That's a Jesus band-aid and Jesus band-aids don't work. Jesus doesn't use Jesus band-aids. Something much, much deeper than that has to happen for us to change. So where's all of this stuff going on in the passage in front of you? Whether you're gonna look at it from the page that was on your seat or in your own Bible, follow along as we look at these passages. I want you to see this from the passage so that this leaves the room with you. Verse 20, King Ahab, he's the king of Israel at the time. He had summoned um, God's, he had summoned the people of Israel. These were God's people. These Israelites were God's people. We would call them believers today. Verse 19 isn't on your page, but if you have a Bible, you can go up to the verse before. It gives a little bit more context on who are all the people on this mountain. Verse 19 says, Elijah is telling King Ahab, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel, which is in Northern Israel, and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. I don't know how many all the people of Israel were, but we're dealing with at least a few thousand people on this big old mountaintop in northern Israel. And the crowd is comprised of two groups. You have God's own people, the Israelites, the believers you could call them, and you have these prophets of Baal and Asher who are two of the popular gods of the time. We'll we'll see more about them in a second. And you want to know the heartbreaking thing about this? With the exception of Elijah, there wasn't a single solitary human being on that mountain that saw anything worthwhile in the the one true and living God. There was not a single human being on that mountain except for Elijah who wanted God, who loved God. Everybody else was at some level of, both the believers and the unbelievers, some level of easy dismissal of him, he's not even God, or what I was talking about earlier, this kind of both end, oh, I know he's God, but, or I know I'm a son of his, but, or I know he accepts me, but I really want this person to accept me, right? Which is always a very endearing thing. It's like saying to one of your friends, well, I know you like me, but I really want their friendship. That was everybody on the mountain with the exception of Elijah, The unbelievers were unimpressed and bored with God and the believers were unimpressed and bored with God. The people who didn't come on a Wednesday night to this and the people who did were all just kind of nonchalant. 
And that's what Elijah puts his finger on first when he starts talking to these people. And he says to them, he asks them a question. They're all gathered around. And he says, how much longer are y'all gonna limp around between two opinions? Which is in essence, a, a get off the fence speech. Who's it gonna be? Make up your mind. If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then leave already. Go follow him. Why are you still here? Make up your mind. And they had the most amazing response. You see what their response is? Verse 21, nothing. They stand there silently, completely silent. The people are just staring at Elijah as he says this to them. It's like if you asked an unfaithful spouse, who do you want, honey, me or her, me or him? And he asks you, can he have a day to think about it? His decision's been made. His mind's made up. He's just not courageous enough to own it. Here are people who didn't want much to do with God, but weren't courageous enough to just say it, to own it. So they kept going through the motions. Have it both ways. Have your cake and eat it too. Um, We know that the Israelites at this time were spiritually dry and were just paying lip service to God. You can go read a lot of the Old Testament, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, a lot of the prophets if you want to see that. Their hearts had been ice to God for a long time. But in verse 30, if you look down, this is the evidence in the passage that we know. Um, before Elijah does this stuff later that we'll talk about, he, um, he calls the people around. He says, come over here. They all crowded around him. As he repaired the altar of the Lord, that had been torn down. All the altars of the true and living God had been torn down at this time in history. Uh, which is to say, in modern terms, all the churchgoers, their Bibles were dusty and unopened. Their prayer lives were silent. Their hearts were cold. Their lives were polluted. They, sh- they had nothing to do with God. That's the, that's the landscape at the time uh, with these people, with, with God's people, the Israelites. And boy, is it hard to worship and prefer and want a God who's that lame, right? That's just common sense. Isn't it hard to get excited about a God like that? So some of us don't know this, but in our heart of hearts, the God that we have mistaken for the God of the Bible stops the sermon right here, stops this story right after verse 21. It's done. I mean, I can sit down now. Some of you functionally believe in a God who would be content to end it right now and basically give you a speech and to give me a speech that basically goes like, hey, how much longer are you gonna suck? Make up your mind already. Be satisfied in me. Don't you know idols are bad and wrong and destroying you and hurting other people too? So just stop. Now look, in what Elijah says in verse 21, there's a little bit, there's, I mean, there's, there's truth. What he says is true there. We're gonna tease out what he actually means, but what he, there's truth in there. We must make decisions. You cannot live on the fence. You can't serve two masters. Your heart is attached to one of them. Your heart loves one, even though you might pledge allegiance to two or more. 
God does want our wholehearted affection. That's true. This stuff we're talking about is deadly serious. That's true. But is this where the story stops? I mean, the optic is even fun. Is this where the story stops? I mean, it's barely the first sentence at the beginning of it. And I just want you to hear me point that out in case your functional beliefs about the God of the Bible is that he's a God who just gives you a moral lesson to stop doing this and to start doing that, who lectures you to love him more. How do you lecture someone to love someone? Has that ever worked? You can't lecture someone to love. Well, the story keeps going and God keeps acting. And the reason the story keeps going is because you can't lecture someone to love, but also because you and I cannot fix the apathy and the accusation that is in our hearts that opened the door to the, to the things that have become beautiful to us, to the, to the idols that um, we worship. That's why the story goes on. So what does God do next? He does what he so often does. This is so characteristic of him. It's so predictable with this God. He proves himself again to people who didn't deserve more evidence of his good heart. That's what he does. He proves himself again by setting up this UFC cage match. Now again, we're talking about thousands of people on the top of this really big mountain. And it's one, one man who has a soft heart and is satisfied in the Lord his God and knows down to his bones he's real and he's good. And 450 prophets of the God who was in vogue at that moment named Baal. So the one true and living God appears in this to be cruising for a bruising. He appears to be the weak one, the lame one, the one who's about to get his butt kicked. So everybody is making side bets as the action is getting set up and it's like, who's your money on? And nobody is betting on Elijah's God, nobody. And everybody's money's on bail. He's got this one in the bag. Let me try to bring this into our day. We don't have battles of the gods, or at least not this way anymore. But imagine this. I'm trying to, to, trying to illustrate to you how much of a foregone conclusion it was to these people that, oh, okay, get it over with so we can get back down off the mountain and go back to our business. Of course, Baal's gonna win this thing. The presumption was, this is laughable. So imagine uh, that we just go out and like randomly pull 450 people from campus, just random people from all parts of campus. And we say, our polling question is just one. And we say, what is the recipe for a happier future? Life pursuing idols or life in Christ? And we define our terms a little bit if they don't understand them. Here's what I mean by this. Here's what I mean by that. But vote. What do you think is gonna be a recipe for a happier future for you? And then we gave them some hypotheticals. We said, okay, for example, let me, let me illustrate that question and you tell me which would lead to a happier future. Um, let's, I'm taking two random examples. Um, a life of setting perfect boundaries in every relationship so that you're never uncomfortable and you never get hurt. Or life in and life with Jesus who loves hard people and crossed boundaries to come and get you. where he'll shape you into 
a courageously loving person who's also wise and knows sometimes you do have to step back in wisdom and it'll make people mad. Now, I don't know what you would say, but what are those 450 people going to say? Idolize boundaries so you can avoid bearing others' burdens, avoid forgiveness, avoid the natural hurt that comes in relationships with sinners, or life with Jesus. I think we know what the answer is going to be. Comfort, ease, path of least resistance. What if we said a life of giving your uh, life away in service to God and other people because you're so satisfied in him, you you really do feel filled up in him. You feel like I can give and give and give and there's not a deficit arising in me because there's more getting poured in. I'm satisfied in him and I can share with other people. That life or protecting your personal autonomy and your freedom so that nobody in the country gets to tell you what to do with your time, your body, your freedom. What sounds happier? What's your heart want when you didn't have the time to think about it, but just the knee jerk? What did you want more? Again, what are the 450 people gonna say? Where's the the majority of the crowd gonna go? Well, the majority of the crowd this day, hands down, easy, it's 450 to one. Idols, idols, self, self. Um, these 450 prophets, they don't just outnumber this lonely prophet, Elijah, and seem to kind of overpower God, making God look really tiny and small and irrelevant and uninteresting by comparison. They were also the cultural authorities of the day. These prophets had been handed kind of the keys to the kingdom in a sense. Um, People listened to them. They respected them. They were the ones on the top of the top of the totem pole. Everybody looked up to these people. They were the experts of the culture. They called the shots. They had swagger. People followed them. Baal at this moment was on the rise. Baal worship was on the rise. If you said today, well, secularism's on the rise. It's having its 15 minutes of fame. Baal worship, Asherah worship was having its moment in the sun. Didn't last too long as none of those things last very long. But in this moment, everybody was falling for it. I would imagine that true believers in the true God would lose sleep some nights wondering, is the world going to hell in a handbasket? What is happening to my country, to my people? Does anybody love the Lord anymore? Am I going to be the only Christian left in 15 years? Same feeling then. Seeing God is priceless. Those people were a needle in a haystack. It was like a smoldering wick. At that time, and that's the reason in verse 22, Elijah says, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who is left, and he's not being figurative. He was the only prophet of the Lord who was left. Jezebel, who was the wife of Ahab, the king, had slaughtered all of the other prophets. Talk about being a minority. You're the only one because genocide has taken everybody else out. You think you're. You think your little movement is on the rise? This is how weak and pitiful Elijah and the one true and living God looked at this battle of the gods at this UFC cage match. It's a David and Goliath scenario times 10. 
So to summarize, nobody's thinking it's going to go well for the, for the God of Elijah. The, Baal's got the optics. He's got the numbers. He's got the cultural trends. He's got the power brokers. He's got the king. He's got the popularity. Baal's the pretty girl. And the one true and living God is, has a good personality. Thus begins the contest. So verse 26, the prophets of Baal prepare the altar. They're beginning to pray to Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. And they do this again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And they're the only ones talking. Nothing's working. So what do you do? What do I do when my idol's not working? when the thing that I am asking to be a God for me, I mean, literally, let's just be physical, like my phone. What do I do when my phone is glitching out and I'm asking my phone to be a God for me to spark my heart back to something interesting. I'm bored and I want to look at it. Or to see, um, to, to, to see notifications and feel important. People need me. What happens when my phone isn't working? I get angry. They're getting angry. You get panicked, they're getting panicked. You despair, they're despairing. All of those things are going on. They're doubling down in their idol, but there's no response. And this is when, now again, remember, one Elijah and thousands of other people, you got to admire, uh, you got to admire his courage. He starts making fun and, and all of his friends have been murdered. He starts making fun of Baal and it's comedy gold. And uh, around this time, um, verse 27, he says, hey, maybe you just need to shout louder. Surely he's a God and he's gonna be able to hear you. And then he says, oh, maybe he's napping. And then he says, oh, maybe he's taking too long in the toilet. Call louder. Maybe he's asleep. He hit snooze too many times. Maybe he's out of town. Maybe he's vacationing. That's what, I, Isaiah, or that's what Elijah is saying to them. And you got to just imagine, if things were going better, they would have argued back with Elijah, but they don't have time for that. Like this thing is going out of control. They're hearing Elijah's mockery and they're just trying to fix the glitch. What's going wrong? So they shout louder. It gets more frantic. They get more desperate and it's spiraling out of control. And I wanted to pause and ask us here, have you ever been in their shoes? I gave you the example of the phone, but anything higher caliber, when something that you had let into your heart, you had looked at, and we're asking spiritual things, of it, our, our emotions are deeply connected to it. And it wasn't working and it let you down. Have you ever found yourself as it were crying out, Baal, Baal, this isn't funny anymore. Answer me. Come out. Show yourself. You might have said it out loud to yourself as you looked in the mirror and two days before the semi-formal that you're on top of the world that you got asked to and you have an acne breakout and nothing's covering it up. But you've put all your eggs in the basket of my appearance, guy or girl. And it's not one of those situations, if, if you did not have, uh, if, if that was not your God, you could still go. You might feel a little weird, you could still go. 
But if it is your God, you have to back out. You got sick. You cannot be seen like that. That God will not let you go out and be a, be a failure like that. Or 2024, election year, if you didn't know, here we go. Could you find yourself saying something like, come on, Baal, listen to me, get your act together, it's not funny anymore. I cannot fathom how I could be okay or the country could be okay if this particular candidate gets elected. God's not in the picture anymore. We've cut heaven out of the equation, it's just us here and this candidate, and if he or she gets elected, there's no going forward. And so you find yourself raging more and more as the year goes on, angrier and more angrier, more and more overposting on social media, more and more chaos coming into your relationships. Have you ever found yourself in their shoes? Your God is dead and you're, getting, you're beginning to freak out and try to wake him up. And I just, it gets worse from there. This is the, this is the existential spiral that happens with, with our idols. Look, when we lose a good thing, it hurts, we're sad, we're bummed, um, but it's not the end of the world. Like imagine, you know, uh, this is kind of, imagine a lab experiment, like a chem lab experiment, like you do all the steps and you don't get the expected result. You're not like sobbing on the floor, raging, right? Because your heart wasn't in it. You weren't needing that chemistry experience to do something or be something for you. These prophets needed this experiment with the fire and the wood to be and do something for them. We can suffer the loss of a good thing, okay? We cannot imagine the loss of a God thing. We will die if we lose it. And that's why these big emotions are always there. And that's happening. They're shouting louder. And it says uh, in... I can't see the verse right now, but you can look down and find it. It says, as was their normal custom. This is in verse 28. Following their normal custom, they start cutting themselves and slashing themselves and their blood is flowing all over this sacrifice. And it begs the question, who's the sacrifice at this point? The bull or the people? whose blood by the hundreds is flowing out all over this dead God's bonfire that can't do a thing about it. A God of diminishing returns. The more of yourself that you give to him, the less you get. The more life that drains out, the emptier you feel, the more desperate you feel, the more we double down. We become the sacrifice. This is the way it always is with our idols. Uh, we feel so flattered um, when they, as it were, say, I'd love to have you for dinner. We're the ones on the menu. They always eat us. And that's what we see happening in here. And that's what I mean by the title, The Gods of Diminishing Returns. Verse 28 and verse 29 is this spiral of the prophets of the people giving more and more away. As it were, in our world, they're going into beast mode now. Regular mode ain't cutting it. This is beast mode time. It's time to pull an all-nighter, pull out all the stops, cross boundaries I never thought I would have crossed, make compromises I never thought I would have made, pull out all the stops. I can't lose this. I can't lose her look at me that says, I want you, so I'll blow past all the boundaries. 
I can't lose that job offer with that company on the shining hill with the, with the glory all around it. And so I'm gonna duck out of all my relationships this year. We descend into that. And it's the classic meme of how it started, how it's going. Beautiful, innocent, no big deal. Circling the toilet into our ruin. Oh, but friends, now we're to God's turn. Baal didn't answer. Baal's not there. They're losing their lifeblood literally with each passing minute. But now it's God's turn. Considering that he is the underdog in this contest, um, it's a little bit odd with what Elijah does next. Elijah's just witnessed all this stuff and so have the people. I mean, he kind of has nothing to lose. Like, can't go worse than that, right? (laughs) I mean, the bar's pretty low at this point. But Elijah wants to make the bar go lower. So he's like, "Um, fill up all these huge jars with water and saturate the bonfire with the water. That would take some time. Then when they're done, he's like, okay, again, a second time. (sighs) Okay, they do it again. A third time. To the point that it is like a pond with wood floating in it. And what he's trying to show, because he's called the people around. Remember, Israel's watching Believers are watching, cold-hearted, apathetic, accusatory believers who've lost all love and interest in their God. They're watching. And Elijah is trying to help them see what God is gonna show them, that, that God at his absolute weakest is marvelously stronger than your idol at its absolute strongest. God at his weakest blows our idols out of the water on their best days. That's what's up with the water. So he said, y'all can keep your dry wood. I'd prefer mine to be floating in a lake. Then he calmly waits, no antics, no dog and pony show, no seance, no ritual, no emotional meltdown. He waits until the time for the evening sacrifice. And he prays. And this is what he prays. Lord God, would you prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant? Lord, answer me so that these people here watching will know that you are God. Do this so they will know that you have brought them back to yourself. Verse 37. Do this so they will know that you have drawn their hearts back to you. Is literally what, that, what those words mean. That he has drawn your heart back to himself. And then the fire of the Lord falls down on that drowned wet wood and consumes it like a California wildfire. Even all the water evaporates and his people saw it. And you want to know what the most amazing and incredible thing about this story is? Please don't leave here thinking that it's that God is able to pull off a magic trick and make 
wet, saturated wood burn. Can't you see what that optic, what that visual is showing us? Do you see it? That waterlogged pile of wood is a picture of our unignitable waterlogged hearts. You remember what I said earlier? You can't lecture someone to love God. You remember what I said earlier that the story continues because you and I can't do much of anything about that apathy and that accusation in us, the disappointment, the dissatisfaction, the coldness. God is showing you and you tonight. He's showing you. Look at that. Look at, look at the driftwood in the ocean. Look at your heart. What are the odds that that heart is going to kick back into flame with passionate, genuine, true love and warmth and excitement about the true and living God? And you're supposed to come to the conclusion the odds are zero. The story could have stopped there too. But it didn't stop there. If this God is the way that this God is, the way he shows himself and reveals himself to be in scripture, the odds are 100%. If you come to him in the impossibility, in the, in the waterlogness of your own heart, your own desires, and you say, I cannot do this. Well, God can. Verse 37 is actually connected to this bedrock theme that is woven throughout the entire Old Testament. I'm going to read you a few verses from, from Ezekiel 36, and we'll wind this down. Ezekiel the prophet said elsewhere, um, God to his people, he said, I'm going to take you out of the nations. I will gather you, and I will bring you back into your land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I'm gonna remove the heart of stone from you and I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh. I'm gonna put my spirit in you and he's gonna make you wanna follow my decrees, which is love God and love your neighbor and to be careful to keep my laws. And then you're gonna live in the land that I gave your ancestors and you're gonna be my people and I'm gonna be your God. Who's the subject of every last sentence? I'm gonna do this for you. I'm gonna do that for you. Your cold heart, I'm gonna warm it up. Your dead heart, I'm gonna give you a new one. Your stony, marbly, granite heart, I'm gonna take that out. Your heart that falls in love with everybody but me, I'm gonna give you my spirit who loves me and he's gonna make you love me. That's what's gonna happen. So God's ultimate answer to our cold, idolatrous hearts is a new heart. It's a heart transplant. Surprise, isn't that cool? And when he changes your heart, you will finally see him as he is and will prize him more and more as we increasingly see him as he is. These people, their changed hearts were fought for and won on Mount Carmel. 
in a temporary way. Your heart was fought for and won on a hill outside Jerusalem. Elijah stood in the gap between God and his people and prayed for them. And a greater prophet would come that's prophesied all throughout this who will stand in the gap between you and your God not just to pray for you but to become you to take your heart the cold, apathetic, accusatory, disinterested, disappointed, dissatisfied, idolatrous heart upon himself and to give you this pure heart that God described in Ezekiel 36 his heart as we end, we, we can't not talk about verse 40, and I'll do it in a couple of sentences. Here's the explanation. Context, they had killed all of the prophets of Yahweh, these people. Context, every human being is a creature made by and accountable to this one true and living God and rejecting him and worshiping other gods is deadly business. There are consequences for our actions and God does not sweep that under the rug. Everyone will pay for their idolatry through Jesus paying for it for you on the cross as he dies as an idolater or you will pay in this way direct justice from God to you. These prophets of Baal are a warning to us they're a picture, they're a little intrusion of a future reality. This is where idolatry leads in its finality to death, to destruction, to abandonment from God. God in his kindness now is saying, let me die in your place. Let me take your place. You take my heart. And when you have his heart, idolatry will begin to vaporize and vanish and fade away. I leave you with this image. I was thinking about this two days ago. I was walking on campus and um, I looked up and was thinking about this passage. How does Jesus becoming more beautiful to you, God becoming more beautiful, have any effect on your other loves? The sun and the stars. The nearness of our star, the superior brightness of the sun fades out all the stars that are just as out during the day as they are during the night, but you can't see a single one of them. They're washed out by a closer and far more powerful and brighter star. That's what happens when God works in your heart. Pray to him, friends. Elijah's given you a template. Pray that God would show himself to you. Pray that he would give you this new heart if you don't have it. Pray that he would rekindle your heart if you do have it. He is good, and it's what he loves to do. Let's pray. Lord, do the things that I just asked. Answer the prayer that Elijah prayed for them, for us. Would you show us that you are God, that you are powerful. You're not Baal. You're not our other gods. You can help us. You can rescue us. You can answer us. You can change our hearts. You can captivate us. We want all of those things. Do it in Jesus. We pray in his name.